family. Hello and welcome everyone. Today we have such a great panel of fierce women advocating for better understanding and more hope for pans, pandas, and Lyme disease. So let's get this show on the road, shall we? Because there's much to discuss. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The CD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Okay, so fam, you are in for a treat. I've just got to be honest. <laughs> it's been a bit of a crazy week over here. My daughter, not even five minutes after I published last week's episode on BDD, made us aware that she had a broken arm. I mean, she had heard it at school during recess, but it was progressively radiating more pain. And that kind of just set off a bit of a tailspin, if you can imagine. Also, my husband started a new job this week. It's just been crazy busy. And so I kid you not, when I sat down and was formatting this episode today, I, I was just in awe of the dynamic panel that are really honoring us with their stories and their time today. And even more than that, I'm simply blown away by how courage and duress led to paving a way, bills being passed, an entire worldwide network being formulated for our pans, pandas, Lyme, and other tick-borne illness-related warriors and fam. I mean, talk about making lemonade out of some lemons. Yes, please. I got chills, seriously, multiple times just revisiting our conversation. And I was there for the first one, fam. I knew what we were going to discuss and still I'm in awe. So I'm going to go ahead and hustle on into it because there's too much good not to share and I don't want to have to wait another minute. So I'll just remind folks that this is part three of our OCRD, that's OCD Related Disorder series. And hey, maybe you're like, what the heck is pants or pandas? And what does calphalon or bears have to do with OCRDs? And I promise it's neither of those things and we will get to that. But my amazing panelists can explain it so much better than I ever could. So after I introduce them, if you're still like, but wait, what? Hang with us, fam, because I promise, I promise we've got you covered. Also, as always, I will have citations and resources that we discuss during our family time available over at ocdfamilypodcast.com. Just look for this episode's vlog and you'll get the hookup. And lastly, a trigger warning of sorts before we get started. So as with OCD and other OCRDs, sometimes the hopelessness and the pain that can build up around lived experience of any of these mental health or medical disorders really leave folks in a place where they just can't fathom going on. So while we don't go super in-depth on this topic, I do want to provide that trigger warning that we will be talking about this sort of ideation at some point during our episode today. But here's the deal, fam. We will also be talking about hope. 
So please use your discretion as we continue. But I hope you will continue with us because if anything else, I hope what you can leave with is hope. So let's get to it. All right. Well, welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. I'm so excited today because I have a dynamic panel of just amazing women coming to speak on the topic of pans and pandas. And you might be like, why are we at the zoo? Like, why? What, what's pandas have to do with OCD? What does it have to do with OCD-related disorders? And if you have that question, then I'm so glad you tuned in. Some of the folks, some of the fam here is going to be tuning in because you understand it all too well and you are trying to survive and just stay above water. And so we welcome everybody and I just think everyone that's tuning in today that they're able to come and learn more about this really, really important topic when we are thinking about OCD and OCD-related disorders and pans and pandas place within that. So first off, I'm just going to, I'm going to have my panel say hi. How about you, Lindsay? Can you share a little bit about yourself? Hi, yes, I can definitely share. I am Lindsay Forsyth. I am a mother of three. I have two children with pandas. My first was diagnosed in 2018 and my second was diagnosed in 2022. I spend a lot of time working with families Originally, it kind of started in the Midwest where I live, but as Diana and Brittany and Angela and you all know, word travels fast sometimes when people are in crisis. So we work with a lot of families throughout the country who are looking for a thread of hope and solidarity and resources, and we just try to connect and triage them to the right places. So um, I'm glad to be on here. Thanks for having us. Yay, Lindsay. My name is Angela Henry, and I have a private clinical practice in Indiana with folks with OCD, Tourette's, BFRBs, anxiety, trauma, and some some other pieces. And really, I am kind of a little late to the game with pans and pandas and tick-borne diseases. I just really discovered it after having a lot of clients presenting with pandas and I wanted to know more about it. And it just seemed like in our area, there was just a big swath of people, kiddos coming in. And it it really, it kind of chose me. But you responded (laughs) to, and we will probably talk about this. I'm sure the panel is going to be like nodding like, oh yeah, that you responded to what you were seeing in the here and now you were seeing come into the office. And so many people come in with concerns and it's downplayed or dismissed by providers. And so that's going to be part of the importance of us sharing about that today. So you responded to what was happening in real time, and we see that and value that. Thank you, Angie. And then we have Diana Pullman, and we are so honored to have you with us today. Diana, I would love for you to share a little bit with the fam here how your involvement has grown in advocacy for the Pans and Pandas. Sure. So I'm Diana Pullman, the executive director of Pandas Network, which is a national nonprofit for mommies and daddies that think they've got a sick little kid that might have pandas. And I I started this nonprofit in 2009. My son got pandas. It wasn't called that then. He mm-hmm. was seven years old. He's 23 now and he's fine. I just want to give people the good news is the kids, if they get treatment, grow up just fine and they go to college and get married and have babies and everything's fine. But, you know, I... I live by Stanford University. My father used to work there. And I had a lot of professional people, you know, at high levels when my son got sick, 
that explained to me this is a rare occurrence with strep mm. and that nobody is studying this problem that strep throat bacteria can cause. Still, there, there are very, very few people are studying the, the illness. So I created the website and started flying around on an airplane to meet as many doctors as possible to create a team for my son. And these wonderful doctors have stuck together. It's a small cadre of about 30 doctors working on the research. We know how to get the kids better, but we do these podcasts and I connect with mommies like Lindsay because it's only word of mouth pretty much. Mm -hmm. Really still not a mainstream disease, but we can get kids better. And Lyme disease is an additional infection we're seeing that's creating pandas-like symptoms. So I'm just here to help because it's a really, the last thing I'll just say, it's a, it's a really scary illness that little children get between the ages of four and 10. Generally, not always, there's outliers. Mm -hmm. It's really scary. It's not just OCD. Mm -hmm. Term pandas was badly written when it was first defined. It was an accident. It was just an academic definition. It's far more, I think, you know, Lindsay and Brittany and Angela can talk about it. It's far, far more than just OCD. So I know this is an OCD podcast, but pandas or pans is Armageddon. It's scary. And so we're here to just help people be less afraid and we can get you through it. Yeah, really great point. The severe and suddenness of the symptom presentation, often I think people are in such shock, they just don't necessarily know how to react. And what can be difficult is that that response time is going to be so critical in terms of the prognosis and how that disease progression takes place. So a really, really good point, Diana. We are so lucky to have you here today. And Brittany? Hello, I'm Brittany Goss. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the clinical director of Zen Psychological Center. We work primarily with OCD and anxiety and pans and pandas. The reason that I got into working with OCD, pans and pandas is from my own lived experience. When I was younger, I did get bit by a tick and developed a really sudden onset of OCD along with a lot of other psychiatric and medical symptoms where I was just completely dismissed by so many doctors for probably about like 10 years. So trying to figure out what's wrong with me. And then once I did, I finally got to some answers. I was just so distraught with the politics behind Lyme disease, pans and pandas, and really just I wanted to change that. And yeah. so once I started to get well and get better, I really just went back to graduate school and became a social worker so that I can work with this community because it was just such a it should have been caught so much earlier for me. And I don't want people to have to go through the same thing that I necessarily went through. So that's kind of what I'm here and what brings me into working with pans and pandas. So thanks for inviting all of us. Yeah, I, I am so grateful mm -hmm. to have you. You know, one of the statistics that the OCD community quotes quite a bit is that it takes 14 to 17 years from the onset of symptoms for someone to get treatment. And when we look at pans and pandas, it can appear, and, and you mentioned this even in your sharing there, Brittany, but it can appear very much like, oh, this is OCD. But imagine truncating that 14 to 17 years into two days. And seeing the dramatic difference, your loved one that you've always known being completely hijacked by something unknown. And so we are going to be talking more about that today. And I will also note, so are you in Palo Alto, Diana? Yeah. Yes, okay. I am. 
Stanford's right out the window. Right. Right there. I was in a run club once at Stanford, a friend that lived up there, and I went up there often enough that I'm like, I'm joining the run club. It's beautiful up there. But what I will say, too, is, and you heard it from Diana herself, there are so few people, there's so few researchers, there's so few doctors in this network that truly understand it. And there are a lot of powerful things coming out of the Palo Alto and Bay Area. We have a lot of technology development. I think, you know, Meta is probably based there still. We have Stanford there, which is doing amazing work in all all sorts of different fields. And yet it is so small. And so if you're living in a cornfield like Angie and I here, <laughs> then, then you're like, okay, well, if Palo Alto doesn't know, then I'm telling you, the stock of corn doesn't know. Well, so We do have a clinic here at Stanford for pandas kids, but it's so badly impacted they can't take more patients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's happening. But anyways, yeah. There's growing awareness. So I, I, I love that point. Okay, so what is Pan and Pandas? We've said it's kind of OCD-like, but it's not OCD. It feels like Armageddon. And so, Lindsay, maybe you could start us off with just helping broaden our, our family members tuning in today, their understanding of what Pans and Pandas is. Happy to do that. Before I forget to make one point, I think you guys kind of created a, a, a point for me to talk around in that when you were talking about OCD mm-hmm. and when you were talking about how long it takes for that to be diagnosed, I do talk a lot with the families I work with about the silver linings that have existed for us in our lives. In my collective family, um, there are five of us. And one of them that I was just thinking about the listeners here is, in, in some ways, yes, pandas and pans are really, really, really hard. And the good news about having OCD be a major symptom, but one of many symptoms, is I do wonder if pandas has helped children and adults who have been living with OCD symptoms that seem to wax and wane maybe in different patterns than maybe you guys would see as therapists. They see them coupled with other symptoms now that they're like, okay, now I can't maybe explain this away or I can't ignore this anymore. Or maybe there's more to the story. I'm wondering how many people are getting help earlier and sooner because OCD is showing coupled with other things that can't be ignored. Yeah. And hopefully maybe helping people to get an earlier diagnosis of even, you know, just the OCD symptoms. So there have been so many silver linings. I mean, I'll tell you, some of my silver linings are right here on this podcast with me as far as, you know, the blessings that our family has been given via a very difficult circumstance. But there, there's such a great community of parents and people like Brittany who've lived through it themselves as, as children and young adults just there you don't have to be alone there are so many people that are happy to help and i know that your 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 community for ocd alone has proven to be that way so yeah so in terms of what pandas and pans is first i'm going to throw out the acronyms they're big words and they're kind of like move <laughs> what do these words mean but it's important to know them that, and to understand where they're coming from but then i'll talk a little bit more about specifically like layperson terms mom to mom what that looks like so pandas stands for pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders associated with streptococcal infections. Mm-hmm. And then PANS is another acronym that stands for Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of these are forms of autoimmune encephalitis. So if you can picture it, it's like this big umbrella of autoimmune encephalitis that has all these little specific forms of autoimmune encephalitis under it. 
But basically what that means is your body has brain inflammation that occurs when the immune system mistakenly attacks healthy brain cells. Mm -hmm. And that leads to autoimmune processes that affect the basal ganglia specifically of the brain, but also other parts of your central nervous system function. Mm -hmm. So when, again, this is a pediatric onset, but I know that Diana probably, you know, Brittany as well in your work, I know that the specialists, the physicians that I've worked with have said they've seen adults who've been living with this for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, well, it's pediatric. Well, it's a pediatric onset. It doesn't, you know, if you don't get treatment, this could follow you for for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Now, the affected person will most often have OCD symptoms, anxiety, tics, other abnormal movements. I'm sure Diana will talk a little bit about Sydenham Korea. Personality changes, decline in their handwriting abilities or maybe some school skills, some sensory sensitivities. A big one is eating restrictions that may not always look to a parent like eating restrictions. But the big thing to remember is the affected child will typically have a sudden and often dramatic onset of these symptoms. Mm -hmm. Now, parents like me, I did not realize when we were first diagnosed that the mechanism had actually kind of like, quote, turned on a year prior to, because sometimes the flares will come and go quickly at the beginning and you, you won't realize that they are what they are until, you know, things start to pile up a bit. But in a nutshell, just remember It's after an infectious trigger or an environmental trigger or a virus can even trigger it sometimes. These triggers cause the brain to be under attack by the immune system. They're trying to fight this trigger, this infection, but in the process of fighting that infection, it fights the brain as well. And it sends them into these neuropsychiatric symptoms that then parents are trying to wrap their minds around what in the world is happening so quickly and suddenly with their child. I'm just going to stop you for one second. Really important to understand from a medical point of view that it's two or more symptoms at one time. That's unique in neurology. It's unique in psychiatry. Maybe Angela can speak to that but it's usually just OCD or it's just anxiety or it's just neurological abnormality. So it's two or more symptoms that occur at the same time that can't better be explained by some other disease. Okay. Not just OCD alone. Yeah. Not just ticks alone. Okay. Yeah. I think hence the name, Diana, that you used, it feels like Armageddon. Yeah. And that was a, you know, that was a very persuasive word because it's not only these two or more symptoms, it's the sudden onset and your child is one way when they go to sleep, they wake up like as if kind of like an alien has has visited in the night and something has replaced them and they have these symptoms. And, you know, sometimes when it is just one thing, like let's say a child is dealing with anxiety or they're dealing with OCD or Tourette's by itself. It's like they grow into a gradual understanding and ability to adapt and cope with that challenge. You see that with patients? Well, I, I see them yeah. I'm still difficult, but they're they're coming. It's kind of like mm-hmm. having a your first child and then adding a second child, like you grow into the the understanding of dealing with this challenge. But this is sudden onset. This is, this is two or more of those really heavy hitter 
things that one does. And usually the parents are really, really scared. I don't know. You guys are practitioners, Brittany and Angela. I hear people on the phone, but I can't imagine what it's like if a mom and dad is listening to this podcast. Lindsay, it's newer for you, but I I remember now how scared I was and that's why I've kept going, but I don't like to remember it. So maybe you can talk about what you see when people walk in um, yeah, sure. your offices. And it's interesting because even in the analogy of going from one child to the next, presumably, presumably, if you have a full-term child, you have at least 36 to 40 weeks to prepare for that change and it's still hard. So if you have nine months to prepare for that, imagine if you had nine hours, your kiddo went to bed and woke up different. That is shocking. shocking. Yeah. You know, and I I was just on a conference call. I mean, I want Lindsay to talk more about all this stuff, but I was just going to say, as we go forward talking, I talk to doctors like all over the world that are neurologists, immunologists. And because the science is just now coming together, they're not really informed about how catastrophic it can feel. I don't want people to feel like they can't uh, do something. Catastrophic means you can't do anything. It's not that you can. That's what I love about PANDAS. Why I'm addicted to talking about is you can heal people. And it's just oh, cool But doctors themselves tell me they're afraid. I just spoke to 120 strep experts in every continent except for China and Russia, two Thursdays ago about pandas. And they, they're strep experts. They surveil for dangerous strep strains that are going on around the world. Mm -hmm. And they didn't understand at all that strep did this. And I pretty much got off that two-hour, it was like two-day conference. I said, wow, you know, we have uh, work to do. And mostly I'm so grateful for the internet and other mothers because the doctors are 10 years behind people like me and Lindsay and Brittany and Angela. Yeah. So, I mean, there's hope. You can get treatment, but it's very scary. And it really is an old-fashioned disease from the turn of the century, the 1900s, when it comes to strep in particular. We didn't know that Lyme was doing this too. This is all new because we have better technology to surveil how infections are doing things. But we're seeing that from the strep angle, it's an old disease that's resurfacing and that the strep strains worldwide are nine times more powerful than they were 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So it is a more dangerous strep strain now that's going around. Anyway, so it's really humbling. But antibiotics, penicillin, augmentin, it, it, it can knock it out of the ballpark, but the doctors aren't able to articulate it very well yet. Yeah. To go to that point that that you said that the doctors, you know, there's a phrase that I use, Ross Green, like we're all doing well when we can, assuming that we have the skills in the moment to do well to begin with. Mm -hmm. Doctors are trying to do well. We're, we as parents trying to do well. Clinicians are trying to do well. But if that is true, that the doctors are 10 years behind and the importance of pandas, tick, Lyme disease, pans, is getting treatment very quickly. Yeah. Because there is a difference. If you don't get the treatment quickly, then it is much harder to have the healing process. Quickly means within the first year. It doesn't have to be the hour if a mommy or daddy is listening to this. <laughs> it's within the first year, you know, even two, if you're a young child. And first couple so of years, you can endure it. Because, because Brittany and I are going to be getting these kids 
probably not as close. Right. And we're going to get them in the more chronic stage where the healing is going to be more difficult. So I agree that we have so much more advocacy, so much more work to do to catch everyone up to speed so that that can be found and treated in that first year quicker so that it doesn't become chronic, so that it becomes healed. You know, if we had a major donor who could put out a couple million, $10 million would be the minimum, but a couple million dollars, we could organize meetings and dialogues and conversations and have writers. We just have had a lack of funding. But if there's a major donor listening to this, that's all we need. We have the research and we have the talented people like you guys to to help treat. We just are underfunded. One thing I wanted to add to piggyback on what Angela said is I did not go to a pediatrician. When we thought something was going on with our son, and I can share that a little bit more in my story, we went straight to a therapist because we recognized a psychological issue. We recognized something was imbalanced in his emotional responses. We truly thought something had happened to him that I would not have known to go to a pediatrician for. So to the therapists that come on podcasts like this to educate yourselves, I cannot tell you what a service you are doing to your patients, what my therapist did for me in knowing what she knows and for showing up for people that you don't even know that you're going to be necessarily showing up for right now, that you're then going to take this knowledge that you have acquired here and you will save a life. And I'm not necessarily saying like a physical life, although some of these kids get very, very severe, but think about the the, the siblings affected, the parents, the marriages you will save. You are the first people on the front lines for so many families who do not see the physical integration with the psychiatric issues. Yeah. Yeah. The first place that people do go to or the last place is a therapist, right? Because they're having all these like psychiatric symptoms and they don't really know what's going on. So any therapist that's listening to this, kind of what Lindsay was saying is you really can save somebody's life by having this information. No, I really wish I had this information when I first showed up in my first therapy office wondering why I was having all these like, intrusive, obsessive thoughts all the time. Yeah. And what, you know, one of the things that we've talked about here on the podcast is like how a lot of people go into their therapist's office and they don't even recognize the OCD. They're not right. knowledgeable about that, let alone how there could be something medically underlying it. And we do learn in grad school, we want to refer to medical. We want to collaborate with interdisciplinary practice for the best interests of the client. But for some therapists, this just wouldn't register. And even if, and and I know we will get to this a little bit later, because we're going to share about the personal stories and we're going to talk about, okay, now what, what do we do with this? But it's interesting because a therapist can say, yeah, I think this could be pan and pandas. And because the doctors are 10 years behind, they can go in and the doctor's like, whatever, that's, that's, Well, yeah. Yeah. And it feeds a parent hoping for some denial. Like parents don't want this to be the cross their children carry. Right. I I was I would have loved it if if somebody at that time would have been like, yeah, no, pandas actually is that thing. I'd been like, oh, but it would have been a huge, huge problem because it, it actually was the case. But yeah, they're looking us parents are looking for sometimes ways to explain it away. And it's really, really great when you're in denial to have somebody join you in that. Right. Really good point. So I know a lot of you have your different personal experiences and stories that have brought you in 
to this area of advocacy and really helping people understand what's going on with pans and pandas. And so if we can just take the time to go around in Diana, I'm going to start with you in terms of your personal story of how you learned about pans and pandas that ultimately led to this network that you were able to develop. Yeah. So in 2007, my seven-year-old got strep infections that kept coming back like March, then April, then May, twice, then June. And then I started noticing, but I didn't think much of it. I grew up, my dad was a pediatrician. I knew kids got strep, no big deal. Mm-hmm. And he was fine, actually, with the third and fourth infection. He really didn't have a, an issue. But by the fifth one, he started getting really unusual anxieties. He was afraid of bridges. We'd always lived by the ocean, so we always had to cross a bridge, mm-hmm. like every day. Right. And he was afraid of bridges. He had irrational fears about pumpkins, about the sky, about birds, about my presence, my leaving. It's really unusual. I thought somebody had it, had assaulted him, maybe, physically. Mm-hmm. And so... After a certain point, the after about a couple couple more weeks of those irrational fears, then he completely debilitated with eyes dilated, unusual facial grimacing, rolling on the ground as if he had rabies. He was bashing into walls, screaming, yelling, crying, afraid of eating, afraid of not eating, afraid of bathing, afraid of everything. It was pretty acute. Yeah. Uh, we maybe that it was poisoning from lead or something very unusual. So anyways, after uh, many doctors saying they didn't understand what was going on, it took me about six months and he got worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. He couldn't even walk properly. He would fall a lot, didn't use his hands. When he fell, he wouldn't brace himself with his hands, which is a natural instinct. So I understood neurologically there was something else going on. Mm -hmm. Took quite some time, MRIs and spinal taps. We couldn't find anything really remarkable except for swelling in his sinuses and his tonsils. Mm. So I just said, let's take out his tonsils. Bingo. He improved within about, I don't know, four hours after the surgery, 70% improvement. That's the short story. And so then I began to do some research about the term pandas, which was just being kind of thrown around in 2007. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I started doing research about the nature of strep throat bacteria in the 1600s and the 1700s. It wasn't called strep then. And then I started realizing that this was an ideology, a minor ideology of an illness called Sydenham chorea. So when people get strep, they can get rheumatic fever, which attacks their heart. And there's another part of the issue of rheumatic fever or illness of rheumatic fever is something called Sydenham Korea. It's named after some old guy named Sir Sydenham. Okay. And so I thought, oh, well, you know, we have a cleaner environment. We use penicillin. It must be Sydenham Korea. And it's just watered down. It's just a different kind of version of what they used to see with big, big body movements. Sydenham Korea, really, really big body movements. So anyways, I just started meeting with a lot of doctors at Yale and Stanford and Harvard and strep experts. And they said, yeah, you're probably right. And this is thing that we tried to call pandas, but nobody really believed us. And so would you open a website and find more people mm-hmm. that are like your child? And I thought there would be like 10 people, mm-hmm. maybe in a year. And it was 100 people in a month. And it was an avalanche of people. And then we had a big meeting at the National Institute of Health because the doctors were afraid. No one anticipated 600 kids in three months. 
Wow. So that's how I got started. I got my son better with just the tonsillectomy, adenoidectomy. The strep was sitting in his tonsils. They were really swollen. But we've discovered now that sometimes kids' tonsils won't be swollen. That's a whole other issue maybe Lindsay can talk about. But we were lucky. It was classic. And tonsils went out. He improved. And then the issue of just dealing with strep and its you know recovery from it was the main thing we worked on. But after about three years of his recovery, he used IVIG as well, which is a blood product to clear out infection. It's immunocalming and it clears bad infection out. It's used that way all over the world, IVIG, mm-hmm. for many other illnesses. It's not an exotic treatment. Then my daughter got strep a few years later, and we did have rheumatic fever in our community, and we did have an illness called Guillain-Barre, which is a strep infection that can go in the gut and cause limb. Uh, that wasn't my family, it was people in our neighborhood. So we realized we had a strep outbreak when my daughter was seven years old, four years after my son. Mm-hmm. And I've just stayed ever since. I got her better right away because I realized I was privileged because I understood the research and I understood the terrible things that strep can do. But sadly, you know, the information that I gathered over those few years to save my kids' lives, really, it's better than it was then, but it's not as good as I wish it would be. Yeah. That's my story. Yeah. My kids are doing fine now. They're in college and they're fine. 19 and 23. Yeah. And had you not had that awareness from your son's experience and recognizing the specific kind of outbreak it was at the time when your daughter got sick, I mean... Well, and growing up around bacteria and my dad always talking about encephalitis and meningitis and babies and little kids, I was like, bad things can happen. I wasn't afraid of it. Yeah. But it was my luck. It was just lucky that I knew. Yeah. And, and what to do. it's powerful because anybody who's ever gone through like an adenoid removal surgery, like one of the hard parts, especially is like the kids go under general anesthesia, coming off of general anesthesia can be a difficult process. And so and you're saying like, wow, 70 percent better, even oh, yeah. with that weeding off of the anesthesia. You're like, this is undeniable. Something was happening here. Yeah. And, and it's that, really cool. Yeah. That really, is, really cool. Yeah. It's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that, Diana. Brittany, I'm going to jump over to you next, if that's all right, because your experience had to do with starting off with a tick. And I think this is a, a really relevant issue, especially in more forested areas and certain areas of the U.S. And I don't know, but worldwide, how we're seeing the progression and the evolution of not only the diseases like strep, but we're seeing the evolution of the tick population and and those sort of things. So I would love to hear a little bit more about your story, if you'd be willing to share. Yeah, I'd love to share. Diana, I'm really glad that you had a good experience at NIH because I did not when it comes to Lyme and PANS. No, no, they just decided to have a meeting, but they didn't help me at all. But Oh, okay. No, they had a meeting, but that was it. Yeah, I have not had good experiences with NIH with pans, pandas, and Lyme disease. And I grew up in Maryland, so I used to play outside all the time. I'd come home and pick ticks off me. Like, it was never something that we really thought about Mm -hmm. until I was around, like, five. I don't remember. This is kind of what my parents told me, how I had a bullseye rash, so I went to the doctor, and the doctor told me it's probably not Lyme disease, but, like, we're going to give you some antibiotics for, like, a couple of days. And so I took the antibiotics, 
and didn't really think much of it until I started to develop some just really unusual symptoms. Like when I was around seven, I started to get like really fatigued, really tired. I started getting migraines all the time. Middle school, I started to get like a lot of joint pain to the point where like I thought it was just like growing pains or whatever, but it got to the point where it was noticeable. My teachers were noticing, my parents were noticing. So my parents started to take me to different doctors. They ran blood tests. Everything was totally fine. They told me that I'm just going to grow out of it. And then as the years went on, I still had a lot of these symptoms and they progressively started to get worse. I started getting like pins and needle feelings in my arms and my legs, like neuropathy. I started getting tics. And then one day I pretty much just woke up and it felt like I was essentially just a different person. And by tics, Brittany, you mean like motor tics, right? Yeah. Because you know? it started with the tick from the, like the bug, but you were then yeah. developing the motor tics. Okay, I'm sorry. Go on. Go yeah. on. Sorry, I should have been more clear. No, no, you're good. So I started having, you know, these symptoms throughout life. And then one day I just suddenly woke up and I had crippling anxiety to the point where I didn't really understand what was going on. I thought I was literally losing my mind. Mm -hmm. I, I think I was in high school around this age. And I suddenly just started to get like really bad like mood swings and just feel a lot of like anger and rage for literally like no reason. My handwriting starting to get really bad. I started experiencing like a lot of separation anxiety from people and my cognitive like abilities just completely like declined. Mm -hmm. I was really, really struggling in school. And that's when my parents were like, OK, we need to figure out what's going on with you. So I spent the next five years going to different doctors trying to figure out why I'm having all these symptoms. And I was dismissed by pretty much every doctor. I went to infectious disease doctors. I went to rheumatologists. I went to neurologists. I went to our primary care. And all of them would run blood tests and be like, nope, everything's totally fine. Did anybody do an MRI at any point along that, like for neurology or whatnot? Did anything show there? Nothing showed there. No MRI showed anything. I got some x-rays too because my spine just hurt so bad, my spine and my neck. And uh, so I'm going to these different doctors trying to figure out what's wrong. And I'm being constantly told that like, there's nothing wrong with you. This has to be psychiatric. Like I even went to, I went to Johns Hopkins. And Johns Hopkins, they told me chronic Lyme disease doesn't exist. This was a long time ago. I went to NIH and I remember talking to NIH and telling them some of my symptoms and telling them that like, I kind of suspect it might be Lyme disease or it could be pandas and pandas. And they brought their whole infectious disease like team in and sat me down and told me that there's no such thing as chronic Lyme disease. Pans doesn't exist and that it's psychiatric. And that was one of like the most traumatic memories that I have like in the medical community trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Because now I'm thinking, OK, maybe I actually am losing my mind. Maybe these symptoms aren't actually real. Mm -hmm. So then when I was 19, I was about 18 or 19, my joint pain just got so bad to the point where like I was having trouble walking. I was having trouble moving. And I went to my doctor and was like, can we please just run some more tests? And so she said yes. Mm -hmm. And she came back and said that like, oh, you have some stuff on your your Western blot that came up. So it looks like you have a, a Lyme disease infection. So she gave me antibiotics. And when I took the antibiotics, I got so sick. I got so much sicker than what I actually was. 
And I didn't feel any better. And I finished the antibiotics and I'm like begging her, like, there has to be something else here. Do I still have Lyme disease? And she assured me, no, 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 no. Lyme disease, it goes away after a couple of weeks of antibiotics. And I just, you know, I trusted her because she was my primary care doctor at the time. So I believed what she said, but she agreed, okay, let's do another MRI. Let's do another x-ray, even though we just did one like two years ago. Mm-hmm. So I did one. And when I went to the x-ray place, I was telling the lab technician a little bit about what's going on. And she asked, she asked me, she's like, have you ever been diagnosed with Lyme disease? Mm-hmm. I told her, yeah, I've been diagnosed with Lyme disease, but I don't have it anymore. Like I took the antibiotics and I'm fine. And she just looked at me like with the most like devastating face, like she was about to ruin my day. She started educating me a little bit about Lyme disease and how Lyme disease, it can be a chronic disorder. If you don't catch the infection right away, you need more than 30 days of antibiotics. And if you don't, the disease will start to progress and will progress into some of the later stages. So you have the early stage of Lyme disease where you get headaches, feels like a flu, some joint pain. And then you get the more advanced ones like where you develop psychiatric issues, cardiac issues. And so when it goes into the later stages, it then can trigger an onset of pants. And that's exactly what happened to me. And it took me so long. It took me like 10 years to find a doctor that would like actually listen to me, believe what I was saying, find the right treatment. And I remember like going to my back to my primary care doctor and telling her, like, I'm still feeling all this pain. And she she looks at my x-ray and tells me that my spine has degenerated so much to the point where it looks like I'm like 90 years old and do gymnastics. So that's when she started like wondering a little bit more about Lyme disease. And she told me like, I cannot treat you for Lyme disease. You're going to have to go find somewhere else to treat me which I thought was like kind of weird. Then I started to do a little bit more research into it and saw so many other people with similar stories. Mm-hmm. So I was finally able to find a Lyme disease doctor that was knowledgeable in pans and pandas, knowledgeable about chronic Lyme disease. And I did about two and a half years of antibiotics, which seems like a long time, which it is. And there are certain risks to taking antibiotics, but I was at the point where I just didn't even want to live anymore. Like I was in bed every day, like I couldn't function. So, okay, let's just try it. And my life completely changed when I started taking that medication. The psychiatric symptoms started to go away. The OCD started to get better. Like once I started treating the medical component of it, that's when I started to get better. And there's a lot of politics around Lyme disease and pans and pandas, which just really, really angered me because I had to pay like so much money out of pocket for my treatment, like tens of thousands of dollars because insurance companies, they don't cover it. They don't cover it because they don't recognize that it's a disorder. So sorry to interrupt you. Did you find a Lyme specific doctor who tested? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then did you do antibiotics and IVIG or what did you do? Yeah, I did. I, I, I did antibiotics and IVIG. And I first started off with doing steroids before the IVIG. Just for the inflammation or because I know from what I'm understanding, too, from pans and pandas, there's a lot of inflammation that can occur, brain inflammation. And and you're talking. Well, about it is inflammatory. Yeah. 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 So they started you on the steroids. And then how long were you doing IVIG for? A couple of months. I did the antibiotics for a while, though. And the antibiotics was helping with the tick-borne infection and the IVIG was helping a lot with the different brain inflammation that I was experiencing. Yeah. Well, you have great doctors. Congratulations. Thank you. 
And after I got better, I actually opened up a practice with my old Lyme doctor and started oh. working with Lyme patients. And that's how I got into adults. Who's the doctor? Out. Who's the Lyme doctor? Dr. Jaller in Rockville. So he is an amazing Lyme disease doctor. He's really? so knowledgeable in working with pans and pandas, especially in adults, because it happens in adults, too. They really need to change the name. This is not a pediatric disorder. We do see it in adults, too. And it does present a little bit differently in adults. It's not as, like, extreme, but especially since COVID now. Like, we're seeing sudden onsets of OCD after people get COVID now. So it can happen from a variety of illnesses, a variety of different viruses, but it, it can present different in adults and in kids, but it can absolutely still happen in adults. And I see it happen all the time. Mm -hmm. The definition's not changing anytime soon. You'll have to come up with a new term. I mean, there's just not any energy around it. There's a lot that needs to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, Brittany, one of the points that you're making, and I think is a really important point when we think about access to mental health and medical care, is that not everybody has access. And if you have to pay thousands and thousands out of pocket, that automatically is going to stop folks from getting access to the care they need, because <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't an easy thing for you to manage. And a lot of folks, especially at this day and age, post-pandemic, the, the global economy being really still affected, war, different things that impact our economic stability. Like, if this isn't being covered by insurance, and what's to keep you if you go to two doctors and they're like, eh, not limes. You've already done your antibiotics a couple times over. Eh, right? Like, at what point do you go... I'm not taking the evidence the doctor's giving me. I still am digging on. But like, had you not, you wouldn't have uncovered this. And so it, it presents some of that difficulty in terms of like, when do you keep going and when do you go, okay, well, the doctor must know better than me. So, okay. Thank you for acknowledging that. That's so, and, and you know, Brittany even just be like, so I decided I was going to be the difference and I'm going to go back and get my master's and like, Thank you for acknowledging that this is one of those things as it stands right now where the privileged get better care. I think right. that that's an important, that's, that's a, a really important point to make. You know, and that's why I stayed because um, I don't know if it's divine. When you're in a tragic, I get, I still, I'm not, I'm not healed mentally or emotionally, I would say from all of this trauma. It is scary to be a, a, just an undereducated in medicine person coming against medical establishments and you respect people for having these amazing degrees, you know, and going to college for so long, but it's really still scares me to my core. Mm -hmm. it, uh, I just, my personality, I don't, I'm not particularly trying to, to change the world, but I am by accident, you know, and yeah, it's really takes a lot of courage and the advocates are heroes. I, I don't know. I guess we just need to stay united because I don't, I don't see the medical establishment catching on. I mean, I think in 10 years, it'll be a lot better. Mm -hmm. The equipment's getting better. The testing is getting better. Mm -hmm. There are some players in our country. There are some players worldwide who could easily, like our specialist, mm -hmm. my dad said to him once, because we've done some, we've done some advocacy work with him. He said, you know, Dr. K, you could be golfing right now on a golf course somewhere. Like, when are you going to retire? And he's like, I could be. There are too many kids that need my help. So, yes, on a, you know, I kind of look at it as a, a, a top 
down effect where we have these specialists, these people who were part of the consortium that named this, that recognized it, that saw it, that are doing what they do day in and day out. Mm -hmm. And I see that they are working long hours, many days a week, trying to help as many families as they can. And in that, there is so much hope. The difficulty is the trickle-down effect to the local pediatricians, the local infectious disease doctors, the rheumatologists. I mean, there are so many people, because every kid presents differently and heals differently, and because every kid, even the individual child might flare differently from flare to flare Mm -hmm. with different triggers, so many people are on the front lines in the screening, in the early parts of the diagnosis. I mean, I, and you'll hear it in my story, but I went straight to the experts. Like I saw some presentations, I read some publications and I flew my kid to Washington DC in a month because we could. And again, recognizing that that's not the situation that everybody's in, but if we just had more people at a local presence that can help people to just understand what they're dealing with, that will help so much while those doctors catch up, while our system starts to educate more those organic levels. You know, I don't, I don't know what's happening with Lyme. Maybe you know, Brittany or Angela, but like in the strep community, the strep experts, the infectious disease experts are basic scientists. Like they're not clinicians generally. So I'm, it was new to me a couple of weeks ago when I spoke with these strep experts that they didn't really understand clinically because they're scientists of strep. They look at people who died from strep and see how the bacteria did these bad things. Okay. They didn't understand like clinically how it's affecting people. They kind of heard about it, but they didn't really know. Mm-hmm. And they don't talk to MDs. Do you find in Lyme, like do the infectious disease people of Lyme try to talk to the clinicians or is it a separation? Science mm-hmm. versus clinicians? Or So there's a lot of politics around Lyme disease mm-hmm. and particularly around the diagnostics. So there's a lot of people that do not agree with the IDSA when it comes to Lyme disease. So back when they were trying to invent a Lyme disease test, when they started to see all these people with Lyme disease, uh, a bunch of different like the IDSA, NIH, CDC all came to a conference called the Dearborn Conference. And the idea behind the conference was to come up with a test. But the big dropback behind that was also a vaccine. A vaccine was in the development of the way. So they wanted to create a test that was concurrent with the vaccine. So the test that they developed is called the Western blot test. And it's different bands within your immune system. It's kind of like a lock and key. Like if you have a band that comes up positive, like you have been exposed to Lyme disease. So what they did with the test is you previously needed five markers to have a positive Lyme diagnosis. But since they were putting out the vaccine, they took away two of those markers so that people that got the vaccine wouldn't show up positive. But the thing is, is not everybody got the vaccine and the vaccine actually ripped off a market two years later because it made everybody sick and gave them the symptoms that they were trying to avoid. So this is still the same test that we use today. We're still using the same test. Half the members on the IDSA guidelines that have written the Lyme guidelines have conflicts of interest with test kit manufacturers, like they have stakes in the tests that we still use today. So why are we still using this inaccurate testings? Because now people are getting tested for Lyme disease and then they're told, 
okay, like we only have two bands, like this doesn't meet CDC criteria. The doctor's just doing their job. They've just followed the CDC criteria for, for most diagnoses. So they don't know the politics behind Lyme disease. They don't understand how this test is super flawed and not really accurate when it comes to diagnosing people. So once people get a negative test, then they're told they don't have Lyme disease. Well, then guess what? The disease becomes more and more chronic, becoming much, much harder and later in life, making it much harder in life to eventually treat. So there is lots of different doctors that I feel like the Lyme community is always like still trying to figure out like what is the best route to take? What is the best treatment? How can we actually like work together? But there's so many politics like holding things back when it comes to Lyme disease and also insurance companies get in the way too. Right. Uh, insurance companies try to get rid of doctors that cost them a lot of money. And because Lyme disease is not recognized, or like insurance companies will complain to their medical boards about doctors that are using improper treatments for Lyme disease because they're not following the CDC guidelines. And then ultimately, those doctors are removed from practicing. Mm-hmm. So well, there is so much politics. I could info dump on this for like hours. I won't like for you guys too much. But just that fact that like People aren't getting tested. They're not getting the right diagnoses, which is then leading to them developing more severe diseases or it turning. Into- yeah, especially yeah. the adults. Yeah. Yeah. This is a difficult gray area within healthcare at large because there are folks that are going to be champions of this is the new thing. There are going to be folks that recognize those conflicts of interest and how data can be skewed. And they're going to be like, no. And sometimes people will, you know, get into these this judgy kind of debate about check your tinfoil and you guys are all conspiracists. But it's like, no, I mean, we can see how this plays out. It's ultimately a business, too. And we can see how this plays out. And so being able to walk that line of when to keep advocating, when to believe that, no, this is just what it is, like we've gotten our answer or to keep fighting, that can be a really confusing place to be. And as parents, then the mama and papa bear comes out in us and we're like, but my kid is suffering. Our whole household is suffering. What do we do about this? We are going to talk more about what we can do about this. But before we launch into that, Lindsay, You were talking about, and you referenced, you know, different flares that can come up a little bit in your sharing before when you were talking about access. And I was wondering, A, if you could share what you mean by a flare, just so people listening can go, okay, yeah, I've observed that, or at least conceptualize what you mean by having a pan or pandas flare. And then also would love to hear a little bit about your story, too, that brought you into this, this conversation in a very real way. Yeah. Before I do that, I feel like I just keep doing this to you. Before I do that, but one other thing that they were just talking about, and Diana can speak much more to this because this is where Diana absolutely just blows it out of the water. But there is research that has been done in mice models and in a small population of children that shows that the biomarkers in these children with pans pandas do share some characteristics. And It has been proven how this mechanism sort of turns on in the brain. That's a huge, huge part of the growth going forward. There's no longer like a speculation as, well, 
there should no longer be a speculation as to whether or not this is a real process because the process has been proven. Now it's a matter of helping people to understand that science. So I just want listeners to know, like, this isn't like, you know, we're sitting around at a cafe speculating on what this illness is. Like, this is actual science now. And that's same with Lyme. Yeah, same sense. with Lyme. Yes. Yes, millions absolutely. of dollars. Like, mm-hmm. All the things Brittany was saying, like, you can go back and do your research and you'll, you, you, can, you can see that she's credible. Like, mm-hmm. there is science here. And when you need to advocate for your own child, when you have that gut feeling that something's not right and things aren't adding up, dig, ask the question why. If you don't do it for your child, who will? I just, that's... There's, there's a leg to stand on as a, as a parent, and we all know when we've had those moments where we know in our heart of hearts that something's off, and nine times out of ten it is. So don't be afraid to, don't be afraid to speak up because right. that might save your kid from decades of issues, you know, if you can, if you can address it. So, okay, now that I was on my soapbox for long enough. No, you're um, good. I, uh, I'll tell you, so I'm going to back up from our year that Brady was diagnosed by one year. We were, it was end of school year, kindergarten year for him. And we were at my brother's wedding in Oklahoma. And it was the day of the wedding. And I told him to get into the car. And my parents were going to drive them back to the hotel, all the little kids that were in the wedding. Wow. I went and took pictures with the bridal party. Mm-hmm. And my son was a wreck. My middle child who was always just the most easygoing. He wants everybody to be happy all the time and get along. He's a gentle soul. I, I tell that people that if there was like a, a Nerf gun parties were really big when he was younger for birthdays. Yeah. And if there was like a Nerf war at a party, he chose, he just didn't want to really go because he didn't love just the whole idea of like bullets flying through the air. <laughs> he was our gentle guy, just super easygoing, just always was. So during that time that we were at the wedding, I was thinking, okay, he threw a fit about getting into the car with my parents and was, it was just so like irrationally did not want to separate from me. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, it's nap time. You know, he's probably just overly tired. It's, they just kind of would take a rest. It'd been a long day that we were up early to get, you know, ready for the wedding. And then later that night, I'd seen him. We had dinner. We were at the reception. I took him up to the hotel room where my cousin was going to babysit the little kids that night in the hotel room. And he was beyond consolation Mm. that I was leaving the hotel room. His sister and brother were there. His little cousins were there. His older cousin was babysitting. And he was grabbing me with every fiber of his being and begging me not to walk out that door. And I thought, wow, this is so weird. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, well, he's in a different city, different, never been in this hotel before, doesn't know his older cousin as well as he knows his younger cousins. And so again, as a parent, you often think, especially when things are changing so rapidly in their little lives during the ages where you typically see these kinds of things come on, you kind of explain things away. And so I'm like, end of school year, must be exhausted, all new environment. And then, you know, a couple of days later, I didn't notice anything. So fast forward then a year later, a year and a half later, he's in first grade, it's January. And we noticed that Brady is is not Brady. I felt like I was looking at a child who appeared to be my son, but there was this emptiness in his eyes. Mm. And he developed a very, very strong separation anxiety. And I think the symptoms would have seemed more acute to me and more abrupt had I really known what to look for, which is the whole point of this podcast, you know, like just Mm -hmm. helping people to understand what to look for so they have a backdrop of knowledge. Mm -hmm. But he was, you know, I, I 
I tell the story, he was t- asking me a bunch of questions that I thought were like, you know, oh, these are irrational fears. This is so weird. Like, where are these fears coming from? Mm-hmm. I didn't know what OCD looked like. I thought OCD was like, touch this five times, check the doorknob four times. I didn't know all the various ways that OCD can present. And I didn't know that children don't have the lived experience to create this mental bank of like, oh, this is not normal. Like, I maybe shouldn't be this. This obsession is an obsession. Like to him, it was a very real fear. Mm -hmm. So he started to ask questions about the probability of my husband and I getting a divorce. And we didn't know like of anybody in our lives at the time that was getting a divorce. We were happily married. He didn't want to go to the store with me anymore because he was scared that I would leave him at the store. So he just wanted me to stay home with him. He was very, very agitated. Again, my harmony boy that, you know, had it been a child that was a little bit more aggressive, the fact that he became suddenly very overtly aggressive would maybe not have stuck out like such a sore thumb to me. Major, when he would come home from school, the teacher would report that he was kind of zoning out in class. Mm-hmm. But when he would get in the car and for probably an hour and to two hours after school, he would go to his room and he would cry and cry. And he would say that he hated himself and that he was a big baby and he didn't even know why he was crying, but we probably hated him too. And he didn't want to take a shower. And so we would You know, at night, we knew every time that bedtime would happen, we'd have this big blowout where he didn't want to get in the shower. And then once he was in the shower, he didn't want to get out of the shower. And then once he was out of the shower, God forbid you ask him to brush his teeth. And then bedtime was just like trying to create, you know, a proximity to him and like lay next to him at bed. He would just thrash around and he was he was an absolute mess. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, and, you know, the mom thinks it, and in our case, I thought it, and, you know, you bring it up to your husband and they're like, yeah, don't overreact, though. Like, just kind of play it by ear. Right. And then my husband, that's when I was like, okay, I'm not crazy. Like, my husband came down one night after bedtime and he's like, Lindsay. And I remember we talked and we decided that we would see a therapist that we'd known mm-hmm. because there must have been something ha- that happened to him. He was suddenly wetting the bed. He was always dry before that. He would even sometimes wet during the day. And again, he was in first grade, but he'd been potty trained since he was like three. Mm-hmm. And his he had bags under his eyes. He wasn't sleeping well at night. He was just chronic, so tired. And then you're thinking, okay, well, he's tired. So maybe that's the emotion. So, so many things we were just tossing around. And we eventually decided we were going to go to see a therapist, the two of us as a parent and understand what were we doing as a parent that was giving him such great anxiety. Like, clearly, we had to be doing something wrong at home. And or did somebody inappropriately handle our child in some way? And then how do you ask an already fear-stricken kid who's suddenly afraid of everything, how do you probe them for information without planting seeds that they can now obsess over those things? Right. And so the therapist was working us through, you know, like ways to start to regulate a little bit and how we can help him. Because this was like far beyond left brain, right brain stuff. Like we were just trying to keep him safe from himself when he would have these total meltdowns. Right. And it wasn't until March that a friend said, you know, how's it going at home? And I just kind of gotten to know her that previous year. And I'm like, oh, it's it's actually been really challenging, frankly. We have been dealing with some emotional stuff with our son. And this is just how things work. And, And I'm so grateful that they work that way. But she happened to be a physician's assistant. Her husband is a medical doctor. They have a daughter with pandas, and she was volunteering at the health office at our school when she sent my daughter home with strep throat early March. And it was 
you know, an escalation in January and then a deeper escalation in March. And she said, you ought to look at pandas because I think that that, that might be an avenue that could provide some answers. Mm-hmm. So I go to the therapist and like, hey, have you ever heard of pandas? She's like, lots of pandas. You might actually look into that. But I didn't know what to tell her. She didn't know what to ask, which is, again, huge that we're doing this podcast. And so we ended up, my friend gave me some resources. Diana's network was one of those resources where you can find what the symptoms are. You can find how to diagnose it. You can find how to treat it, how typically that, that kind of stuff happens. She also sent me some great videos and publications and even some like 2020 did an episode, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And I started seeing, okay, I've seen my kid in this person. I see my kid in this case study. I see my kid in this case study. Yeah. So I actually called Dr. Latimer at Georgetown in Washington, D.C. after I watched one of her presentations to a pandas community that somebody had put on the internet. And within, again, a month I was there. She put him on a very, very high dose of Augmentin after going through extensive medical history. So I brought a whole packet full of information. The thing about pandas and pans that is is a little tricky is there's not like, okay, go take this swab and it will tell you if you have pandas or pans. It's a clinical diagnosis. So there are things that we can do that if you give antibiotics or a steroid burst and they start to have a lessening of their neuropsych symptoms, that will show you that there is some inflammation that was squashed. So that's an indicator that that's one piece of the triangulation of creating this clinical diagnosis. There, I'm going to stop you for just to, to help people because it's a lot, you know, what we're describing. I think there's two things that we've discovered now, Lindsay, more than even when your child got sick that almost always the parents or the mommy, the daddy, the grandma or grandpa has an autoimmune disease. So the doctor should ask, do you have autoimmune disease, first or second generation, mm-hmm. grandma, grandpa, and or does somebody have a bad issue with strep in the family, scarlet fever or grandma, grandpa or rheumatic fever, grandma, grandpa too. Yeah. So yeah. we're seeing and- family history generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Dr. Latimer did do that, too. She asked us a lot about our genetic history. Of course, my husband's mother has autoimmune. I had autoimmune when I was pregnant with my son who came down with pandas, which is kind of interesting, just anecdotally. But mm-hmm. yeah, no, you're exactly right. And there was a bunch that and I, I don't you know, for the sake of time, I, I'm happy to if people need information, I'm happy to provide that. But we found ourselves a very highly skilled doctor, Dr. Elizabeth Latimer, and we were diagnosed and after two days on a high dose of Augmentin twice a day, our son was markedly better. Mm-hmm. Um, he, his psych symptoms, even my parents who didn't really know much, you know, my dad's a lawyer and he's always looking for the evidence, right? And he was like, I, I can't get over. It's, it's remarkable, the change in him. Yeah. And we did end up doing a tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy a, a month later. We did not have, I mean, he was already much better after the antibiotic. We did not see a, a complete shift in in his wellness and see him get much, much better after the tonsillectomy. But we knew that it was part of the course that the doctor that we were seeing suggested in order to set, you know, him on a better path in terms of when you get your tonsils out, you can reduce your incidence of strep, which is obviously for us not having pans, but we have pandas. It's a huge, you know, huge deal. But then it also studies have shown that tonsillectomy, adenoidectomy route, can make things like IVIG more effective later. So he's doing great. We do have flares. So you asked, what does a flare look like? So for him, his first flare was very, very scary. We found out that that first flare, he also actually had the Epstein-Barr virus. Diana can correct me if I'm wrong, but I have been told by two specialists that the Epstein-Barr virus is very 
well known for for creating a pretty good flair in these kids. So he had Epstein-Barr virus and then he was also exposed to strep, which can just the exposure itself can flare these children. So if his sister brought it home, he didn't actually get infected. He could still flare from that. So he had a kind of a double whammy. So the flare for him was, you know, separation anxiety, some physical symptoms of what they would call secondary enuresis, you know, bedwetting after he's been dry, mm-hmm. a wetting urinary frequency during the day, tons of aggression, emotional liability. He was sleeping very poorly. A lot of times they can't fall asleep very well because that's when the OCD and the anxiety really run away with them in those quiet moments. But also these kids just don't, they don't actually rest well while they're sleeping in a lot of cases. So that's the stuff we saw at first. Now he, you know, again, silver linings, he's so self-aware. Brittany is, I mean, you can just see when, you know, Brittany talks, you, you can see that the children and the the young adults who end up with these types of things have this ability. They develop this ability to be aware of their bodies. And so he can say to me, you know, mom, I think I might be flaring. I'm feeling just angsty. Or he has a hard time keeping his arms and legs still when he is in a flare now. So, you know, we have a plan at school. That is something that I would encourage every parent to talk to their school about putting a plan in place that helps to provide accommodations for them when they are flaring. Mm -hmm. Um, or even when, you know, they're in the baseline in between. I think an important thing to note, too, is when when these people get flares, if you don't do a whole lot about them, if you don't see this as like a long-term marathon and you're trying to find like pathways to healing, and even if you do that, you will see in the process of their journey, you know, they'll get a flare and their symptoms will ratchet up. Then they'll get better. And then their symptoms will ratchet up again with another trigger. And then they'll get better. But kind of picture it like the stock market where that baseline in between flares can continue to rise. So what five years in becomes, quote, normal to my family would have maybe jarred me five years ago when there was no baseline to compare it to. Yeah. And so that's one thing that our specialist says, just be really careful that you don't develop such a warped sense of what's normal. Right. That you can't appreciate when they need IVIG because you've you've adapted to it. So our flares are much better now. He's doing, again, he's doing very well. His brother was diagnosed last summer because we knew what to look for. We very quickly diagnosed it. And we just are very vigilant about strep. He's not, many children who have pans, pandas, do not show normal symptoms of like a normal immune response to things. So in our case, when he gets strep, the only way we know to test him for strep is because we know that he's had an exposure to somebody else with it. Or as I'm starting to have a flare, he doesn't say, mom, my throat hurts. Mom, I have a fever. That does not happen to him. Go ahead, Diana. You're describing the flare of the first child that way? Uh Yeah, I mean, really, it's just that his immune system never settled down for the first IVIG. So there shouldn't be more flares. They need to stop. Yeah, we have to go back and get another IVIG. Right now, where we're... It shouldn't be a way of life. Yeah. 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 And where we're at right now, so we did IVIG ultimately. We were very vigilant about strep for four years. We treated any infections so that they did not go untreated. We, you know, tested him when there was an exposure. And ultimately, we decided what flares him. It does not flare his brother. The flu shot, we we flare. We saw that he gets significant flares from. And so he was due for his sixth grade vaccines. And we decided to do IVIG before doing those vaccines. And Dr. Kovacevic kind of led the way on that. And so he did get IVIG last October. You're not supposed to get strep, ideally, for six months after that. Well, in this area in Indiana, strep was really bad last year. And 
our family got it uh, multiple times. Brady had strep six times in the last year, which wow. basically made the IVIG less effective. What? Wait a minute. Yeah. Last yeah. year? Yes. After IVIG. And that's that's post That's without too. tonsils and yeah. adenoids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, We've, that's and, unusual. I mean, that's all of our children people, have had their adenoids and tonsils out. I've had mine out because I found out that I was a carrier. So we're going to go back to the IVIG board. But even with all that, that strep, he did improve. His symptoms did reduce when he flares by 50 percent. So Dr. Kovacevic is asking for more blood work. He's also doing a, a CT of his sinus cavities and his adenoids to see if they grew back. But the plan is pending all that comes back normal. We will do another round of IVIG to hopefully knock out what we can. And when you talked about setting up a plan at school, so was that like a 504 or did he already have an IEP or what did that look like? That's a great question. So I have him at a parochial school and they have a different, you know, they have a different nomenclature okay. for their plans. His is a Catholic accommodation plan, which is, you know, the diocese that we're in. That's what they call it. And yeah, it basically says he has this medical condition as such. He has X, Y, and Z symptoms. Here are some things that we need to be considered of in the classroom. You know, he might have doctor's appointments that he might miss. He, he does get dysgraphia, which is another flare symptom. I forgot to mention that he does get that. So he will have difficulty writing. like coloring inside the lines or he'll have difficulty writing, you know, notes straight down a margin. He might have a margin drift, which is a neurological thing. So, you know, they they just we have a great group of teachers and they're very accommodating. But the thing that's very important to us is that every year as part of his plan, they do send out an email to all of the parents and they say to the parents, we have a child who responds very, very poorly to strep. Please let us know. You don't have to tell us, you know, names or anything, but let us know if you do have strep in the household so we can let this family know to test their child for strep. He will not show normal symptoms. And that's been really, really helpful. So. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I was having this conversation. I have a, a, a dear friend whose child has strep all the time. And I was like, you know, I've never had strep throat. I've, I've only ever had colds. And that's interesting that this person experienced strep all the time. But I was talking with my brother and he was like, oh, I'm sure we had strep. Our parents just didn't take us to the doctor for it. I'm sure we had it. It's pretty common. And so it, it made me think of this because in terms of how the lack of tracking even around strep, that's of cases that even go in. I think there's probably so many cases that don't get caught because people just don't. So, oh, yeah. So I'll just say in, in the 1900s, to give context, and I just learned this really to say it clearly two weeks ago. So here we go. <laughs> Thanks to the strep experts. In 1900 to 1940, if you had 5,000 cases of bad strep and scarlet fever, you know, rash all over your body, 5,000 cases, let's say, 1,000 people died from those infections. Wow. That's how bad strep used to be. So the Western nations are so proud, as they should be, of what they accomplished in the 1940s. They saw, oh my God, this bacteria is a thing called strep. They named it and they started doing penicillin. And it, it, just, it just stopped. It's in its track. The, the thousand people to, you know, one in five dying. It just stopped worldwide and they did a lot of tonsillectomy to just obliterate the hell out of strep. Mm -hmm. However, we've loosened those guidelines now. We're not giving penicillin as much. We're not doing tonsillectomy as much. So strep is coming back 100%. And I hear more people being referred for tonsillectomies around things like ear infections than I do for strep. 
Yeah. It's a guideline that's going to change in a decade, but it's just stuck right now. Yeah. Interesting. It's a bad thing. Yeah. And not everybody gets strep that kills them, right? Not everybody. It's just one in five. But so it's it's a genetic, you know, frailty. This this might be kind of a random question, but I wonder because dentists and dental hygienists are like up it, often, you know, they're seeing a lot more of that inflammation. Good question. Like, is that also an area of partnering and going because they're probably seeing it more than even your maybe mainstream general practitioners or pediatricians? So they're not in the discussion, but some savvy dentists, I think if you're asking, are, are giving prophylactic antibiotics before procedures, but they're not asking, oh, do you have rheumatic fever in your family? Did your child just stop strep right. before they came here? They're not asking, but they would probably know better. Yeah. 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 Then a pediatrician might. Mm -hmm. Which actually brings up another point that might be helpful for parents to know. Dental events like a filling of a cavity or even a teeth cleaning can flare children with pandas and pans. So like for us, our specialist puts us on an antibiotic two days before and five days after. If we have a scheduled medical treatment, especially here after IVIG, just to prevent any sort of flaring and inflammation from causing the brain to inflame. So just wanted to add that little nugget. Do they think that's because of stress endured during the procedure or just messing around with different nerve endings that could be hit and bothered in terms of like adding to inflammation? Or do they have any kind of insight into why that procedure would trigger a flare? Yeah. So I will let Diana talk if I miss anything here, but I think it's twofold. I think, yes, there's inflammation that your body is sensing and responding to. Also, there are times where strep is, you know, like small microscopic particles of it, even if we're not actively, quote, infected, uh, can be present in the mouth. And these children are just so, so sensitive to it that the immune system releases these TH17 cells to go into action. And that's what affects the brain. That is just what I've been told. I will let if Diana has anything to add. But I know, I mean, there's legitimacy behind it because after I got my packet of the do's and don'ts of, you know, post-IVIG life. That was definitely one of the protocols in there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you do. Yeah. You just prevent it from coming through. My daughter relapsed in 2016 when she was 12 because, no, she was 16. Sorry. Uh, because I didn't do that. I forgot. I don't know. She had a dental procedure. She had the teeth pulled and I forgot to give her prophylactic antibiotics. And she was exposed to strep just coincidentally a couple of days later. And she got very, very sick again. But we got her better. But yeah. So it's interesting because you can note certain things that may trigger it, getting another infection, doing the dental procedure that, again, could lead to onset of another infection or another flare. But we also see the idiosyncratic nature of how pants and pandas can present. So Lindsay's experience was very different than Diana's experience, was different than the tick-borne Lyme's experience that Brittany had. So it, it's, it's very specific case to case, which is the same thing with OCD, where different themes, different emergence of symptomology, it's going to look so different person to person. So in terms of helping folks that are tuning in, either learning about this for the first time and going, well, for lack of a better word, shit. I mean, like, there's a lot of strap going around. So should I be really concerned about this or just learning that if people have had strep and could this be something they have these psychiatric symptoms, they also have OCD. Could have it been pants or pandas? 
What resources can we point folks towards in terms of looking at this clinical picture of ruling out pans and pandas, maybe the tests that they would need to look for, the family history? So you're speaking to the genetic component that, you know, autoimmune in the family. We we mentioned it on our Pandas Network website, Mm -hmm. but Pandas Physicians Network has an excellent website, Mm -hmm. those two websites. And then you can just Google pandas or pans. And there's a lot of people who've been writing about it and doctors and things like that. So I would just say, look at the websites too much to go over it right now. Yeah, It's not complicated. The other thing I was thinking is we'll have to give you, Nicole, a presentation that Diana and Angela and I just participated in last week. It was specific to pandas, though. But there is obvious overlap between pans and pandas. And I wouldn't say it was even specific to pandas as I say that. The stories that Diana and I told were, of course, specific to pandas because that has been our experience. But the information, it does have crossover, of course. But we can provide, I would imagine, right, Angie, can we provide something to have information so that people can learn more about where to find the presentation that we did? And the, the title of it was, I suspect pandas, now what? And it was Diana talking about what she knows, me talking about my story, and then Dr. Margaret Jessup and Angela Henry discussing OCD, how to help our kids through what's happening to them. How do we love them through this? How do we support them at home and support their siblings? What are the practical things that we can do to help calm them when they're in this state of fight or flight? Yeah. So that might be a great resource, too, to provide. And Lindsay, I don't know if you'll have our contact information listed, I don't don't know, Nicole, but we've actually done a kind of a series on pans, pandas, Mm -hmm. horn diseases. So we also have another webinar that we did with Brittany involved talking about resources specific to tick-borne diseases. And, And even Brittany has some great resources on her website with different doctors who provide great care for pans, pandas, tick-borne diseases, along with those two resources that Diana had mentioned. It's some of the resistant pandas cases, especially in Maryland, are coming up with, they get strep, and then we're not sure when it happened. They also are having bacteria called Bartonella. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could speak to Bartonella. We're seeing a lot of pandas kids on the East Coast mm-hmm. having Bartonella yeah. and the strep, and then it's just bad. And I see that all the time, too, which is another resource that I want to put you guys to on my website. It's Mm zenpsychologicalcenter.com. So it has a list on there of all the testing that you'll need, whether it's tick-borne, certain viruses that can trigger pans, Bartonella, so tons of different tick-borne diseases that can cause this. I also have a list for different Lyme disease doctors. So based on whatever state you're listening to this from, You can go to your state, see what type of Lyme doctors are on there. And they're all really fantastic Lyme doctors that really know their stuff when it comes to treating Lyme disease when it's in more of its like chronic and later stages. But yes, Diana, I all the time see people with Bartonella. Why is that? What's Um, going on with that? A lot. So oftentimes, by the way, I love Dr. Latimer. She is an Mm -hmm. amazing neurologist. We were talking about her earlier. So we have a lot of mutual patients. And I find that. There are some people that have a rapid onset group treated for pans and pandas, and then it suddenly comes back. 
because they might have another underlying infection. They might have Lyme disease. They might have Bartonella that's not treated. And Bartonella is a pretty serious tick-borne infection. It causes a ton of psychiatric symptoms. Like it's known as like a psychiatric disorder of tick Is it like, is it like strep? Like, can you have Bartonella? Like some people can have strep and they're just fine. You know, mm-hmm. they don't really react to it. Obviously, lots of people don't react to strep that badly. Is it the same with Bartonella or is everybody that get Bartonella, they're, they're messed up. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like my my population might be a little bit skewed because I only typically see people. You only see the messed up ones? Barsnick. Yeah. So that's a good question. I, I really don't know. But everyone that I've known that has had Bartonella has had symptoms. But my yeah. perspective is a little biased. Well, and I will say for, so we have an international audience. And so for anybody outside of the United States, these resources, you can still check out what different testing would be useful. And then depending on where you are, there may even be a local community or coalition working on this. I know you mentioned to us, Diana, that you were working on a surveillance study in Europe and Italy and the UK, looking at specifically the, it looks like M1 UK strain. The the new bad strep strain that's going across Europe and Australia. And Australia. And we have, we have and the U.S. actually yeah. in the U.S., but not it's all over the U.K. It's endemic to every all strep now is M1 U.K. That's virulent strep. If you have a very it's all that in the U.K., it's creeping up now in Italy and Australia. And my my daughter got it, actually. Unfortunately, that was her. Yeah, it's creeping up in the U.S. in 2016 is sort of creeping around here. But it's usually in city centers, people who travel a lot, you know, bring it home. So Maryland, Washington, D.C., San Francisco. Yeah. But maybe not in the Midwest so much. I don't know. Well, and so that points out that because this work is being researched and done and monitored across the globe, then there are resources outside of the U.S. as well. But you can certainly check out and I'm going to link all of these on this episode's blog post, you know, what testing is recommended. Now, at the beginning of our time together, and I know we're, we just have a few moments left, and this has been so impactful, so thank you all for everything you've contributed. We've talked about kind of the time-sensitive nature and also talking about the acute onset and when does it start to look more like a chronic clinical case. And so just wanted to touch base on that because some folks are going to be finding us in the acute onset like hijacking of their loved one's brain and the the sudden presentation of these psychiatric symptoms but also we're looking at sometimes people are coming in and Brittany and Angela I'm sure you're seeing this where they're having more chronic long-lasting effects from having dealt with this not knowing what it was much like your experience with Lyme Brittany and and so just wonder what you guys could add to the discussion around that. From my point of view, Brittany, you you might see things differently. I kind of see kids when parents are with probably when they're in a flare or when it's the first onset or that's I I don't know. I'm kind of backtracking on all of this because it's so hard that because of mental health, there's such long wait lists to get help right now that that families might be calling when there is an acute onset because they don't understand what's happening and they look at it from a behavioral point of view. Because we humans, when we don't understand things, we like to fill in the end of the story with all sorts of horrible explanations for what might be happening. Kids might be unmotivated. They might be attention seeking. They might be X, Y, and Z, but it's none of those things. It's actually, 
this is a great kid having a hard time in this moment, but with something that they don't know what to call it. Mm-hmm. So a parent might initially call when they're in mm-hmm. crisis. Yeah, but before we can even get to see them, they might even become chronic. If what Diane is saying that it needs to be treated within that year, I know my wait lists are long, Brittany. I don't know what your wait lists are like, but I think we need to do better by these kids in so many different ways in terms of their ability to get into treatment quicker, in our ability to just notice these great kids that are having a hard time instead of labeling them with all sorts of unhelpful adjectives. I don't know. That's I try to I try to always correlate when somebody calls me and they said, I've been sick. My child's been sick for five years or 10 years. I just say, you know, was there any infection? And then when this all precipitated, is there family history of autoimmune disease? And then the big thing is it's not just psychological symptoms. Never. It's never just psychological. There's a neurological factor all the way to if it's chronic. But even if, if it's acute, but it can become mildly chronic. So there'll be what, what's neurologic? Sensory sensitivity is one thing. A lot is sleep. I see bad things happening when people sleep are constantly disrupted in the REM state. Because we know the areas of the brain that are inflamed. So, you know, if people sleep or children's sleep are really disrupted, I mean, the sheets are banging all over the place. They're banging their head at night. They're pretty big things that are happening if it's chronic. And sometimes it's a 50-50 chance. Sometimes kids can outgrow it. Yeah. Can, but sometimes they don't. And I think it's, I was going to say real fast, it's less than a half a percent of children in the U.S. right now, or less than 1%. But those of us that are that 1% or a little less, I mean, we ain't got nobody. So we have to stick together. Use anti-inflammatories. Motrin even can get you going. The poor man's bandage treatment. Yeah. Well, and something I'm wondering, too, because I have autistic kiddos and they have different sensory diets of things they're going to need and and lean in towards Mm -hmm. certain things they're going to be avoiding on, things that are going to be neutral. And through different developmental stages, some of those preferences and regulatory needs may change. And so if we start seeing a disruption in sleep and we maybe already recognize that there are going to be certain headbanging, for example, and that's what made me think of it in terms of certain kind of sensory things that might be soothing or sought toward to help someone calm down to be able to go to sleep. Sometimes we don't have insight or those things don't emerge until a certain stage. And so how to differentiate, is this just part of their normal sensory processing or is this problematic? Mm -hmm. And I think probably, yeah, you can use an anti just poor man's pandas treatment. You can do an Aleve, Aleve that's Stanford and Harvard use Aleve, A-L-E-V-E, just the stuff you get at the grocery store. Yeah. Twice a day for a kiddo. I mean, you have to ask, make sure your tummy, you know, child's tummy's full or just try it once. And if the child calms down after, you know, two days of trying that, it's immune mediated. I mean, it's not like it's impossible to lower the inflammatory processes. So just do the poor man's pandas treatment. And then autistic kids suffer from pandas more acutely than neurotypical kids. It's really worse when they get it, if they get it. Yeah. And that's an important point to highlight because I think depending on where people are able to access either evaluation or awareness that maybe that they are autistic, sometimes the symptom presentation is downplayed, even if we do know it's autism. 
Because we go, oh, yeah, you have these kind of struggles with certain things here, and that's to be expected. But what I find as a differentiating factor, and I wonder if this would fit for you, Angela and Brittany, would you say, like, if that sensory input is more regulating and egocentric versus egodystonic, would egodystonic apply more to we're having some neuropsychiatric things versus this is a stimming regulatory thing? Or do you feel like it's hard to parse out even at that level? I feel it's a, a little bit different. Like, I've noticed a lot of sensory issues related to pans and pandas can almost even be like painful, like mm. very more uncomfortable mm. than I've seen with like autism. And yeah, Angie, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Thank you for sharing that. I didn't know that. It seems like, you know, if a if a child has autism, the, the challenge is the kind of self-regulation, emotional regulation challenges that already might be present. So it's just like, Again, I'm going to go back to that word, Diana, of yours, Armageddon. Child with autism is already having so many different sensory inputs and, and things. So it can be, at least from my point, a little bit hard to, to parse out what is really happening. Is this part of an autism presentation that's already present and, and the pans and pandas is an add-on? Like what, what is kind of happening? So it, it can be kind of tough. I would love to comment on, so earlier we we're talking about like the complexities, like once it becomes more chronic versus acute, and it ties into autism, is it can present a lot different in a more chronic stage for later people. Mm. Um, like if somebody comes into my office and tells me that, you know, and they're, they're 40 years old, last month they started to develop all these like light sensitivities, and noise sensitivities. Well, that's not going to be autism if they didn't have any of those issues up until their 40s, right? So right. let's begin to see if there could be something else that's causing this. I also see like a lot of fatigue as well. I also see a lot of hallucinations. Like, wow, really? When, oh, yeah. When people get into those chronic later stages, they absolutely can have hallucinations and can almost even be delusional. Adults? Their- a lot of paranoia. paranoia. Are you talking about children or adults? Adults. Well, and children, for me, children too, like they're afraid of eating because they're afraid maybe it's been poisoned or it has something in it. Or gosh, I remember working at a pediatric specialty office and this is where I, I first saw an actual visual presentation of pandas. And it was it was devastating. The child really wanted to get out of the building because they felt like people were after scared. them. Yeah, they're scared. Well, and you can see that with fever. You can see that with insomnia too, even outside of disease presentation having a really bad fever or having such limited amount of sleep and your body really starving for rest. Like we see hallucinations and delusional activity happen sometimes where the fever resolves and you're like, oh, now I feel like I can, I can reality test better. But in those moments, we also see that in chronic OCD where we see some severe case presentations where the fear is so absorbing and overwhelming that the person is like, oh my gosh, what if they were going to get me? And you can tell that they're not tracking everything in real time, but it can certainly be a manifestation of any of those things. So that doesn't surprise me. But what is problematic is then when you go and get help from doctors and they're like, well, you have a delusional kid, maybe we should hospitalize them because they're not going to be treating what's needed. They're probably just going to put them on Zyprexa or another antipsychotic and send them home. Like that's, it's not great. And they despair, I think. I was going to say doctors are human. And I, I thank God the technology is improving and 
there's hope for the future that's going to be better testing. I'm sure of it. But I'm going to say the diet is really good for mommies and daddies, like having a good diet, not too much sugar, not too much bread. It really helps these kids a lot. You know, yeah. I don't know if it helps with hallucinations, but it might. <laughs> I think it's very important when it comes to Lyme disease. Is it? Oh, yeah. Gluten, red food dye, sugar, dairy. Yeah, it can cause a lot of inflammation for people. Yeah, yeah. We could have a five-day marathon. Yeah, well, maybe a part two. You guys are always welcome back at some point if you would want to continue this conversation. And I, there, well, and I, I, I would love a part two. And from a parent's perspective, I would love for Brittany and Angie and you, Nicole, to be able to say, when you have a child suffering with this OCD, this, this huge symptom of pans, pandas, or when you have a child who's maybe just suffering of pandas and pans, like, you're at such a loss while you're waiting for treatment, while you're waiting for insurance coverage, while you're waiting for all of the things. You need somebody to tell you right now, how do I handle when they're beside themselves? How do I do it without making it worse? How do I not damage our relationship? I would love for parents to be able to do that. I mean, I'm in full support of round two just to be a listener myself, <laughs> if you're okay with it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, as a part of this series, we'll have this will be our introductory conversation. But especially, you know, come later winter, early spring, I would love to have a follow up conversation yeah. because this isn't like a one and done thing. And I say this with a lot of topics we discuss here in the OCD family community, but it's like these are ongoing, difficult, devastating different diagnoses that we're dealing with and and it doesn't just impact the sufferer it impacts the entire family and treatment and hope can also not only impact the person that is a warrior against whatever diagnosis before them but it can impact the family and so it is a really important part it's an ongoing conversation in terms of just even thinking as a bookend here for our part 1 what is a message of hope that you could give family members listening going, oh, my gosh, what if this is what's been going on? Or we can link this back to a time where somebody was sick. We didn't really think much of that. Or maybe it's just in that acute onset where they're like, I'm trying to survive and I'm barely staying above water. Like, what would that message be to help family members just know they're not alone and that there is hope for this treatment? Lindsay, it kind of feels like. You would be a great one to attest to to that. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still in the throes of treatment. I have a son who's needing to get more done. I will say he is living a wonderfully fulfilled life, and he's doing excellent. Yes, we have some residual OCD symptoms when he flares, or some of the the neuropsych stuff going on. But if it was at a ten, it's now you know at a four. I would say you know just mom to mom. If I was sitting face-to-face -face with somebody who's panicking listening to this, I would say that there are so many silver linings if you look for them, mm -hmm. when you look for them. I've never felt a closer bond with my son than I do right now. And I credit pandas and people who were able to support both of us through the journey with helping me to understand how to take the lemons of pandas and make lemonade in our family. Our children recognize that people carry invisible burdens that you don't see. And it's created a ton of empathy around what other people must be going through when they have an off day or when they have a short fuse. My husband and I, as 
a married couple appreciate one another so much because of what we've gone through together to support the, the, the human beings on this planet that we love more than life itself. We do not take for granted crazy laughter. I mean, our kids are loud and they're rambunctious and they live, you know, we live on a five acre property and they're always running around somewhere and we can't find them when it's dinner time and they haven't done their homework when they're supposed to. But my gosh, they're functioning and they're loving each other and they are happy. And sometimes they go to bed a little bit later because they're having fun together. And so with the rigidity that I would hold my family to is not so rigid anymore because I so appreciate that they're laughing together and that my son is laughing and that that he is sharing his story and it's empowered him and he's helping other people to better understand what maybe a tick looks like or if there's a child who has OCD, they're just like you. They they just, instead of having a headache right now, they're having a little cluster of OCD. And, and it's just been such a beautiful way for our children to see themselves in this world and to see other people. And we have the cheerleaders. So, I mean, I don't have much to offer by way of like, yes, there, there certainly is hope. I mean, again, Panda's Network is a great site. There are fantastic doctors that will see you through this. And in the meantime, don't lose sight of the beautiful things that are in that journey too for your family. It's not about necessarily what year will it be when our kid is totally symptom-free. We're not symptom-free, but my gosh, we're so happy and we're so grateful for where we are because we have the backdrop of where we were. Right, right. Really well said. Thank you for sharing that. Angie, if you want to share yours. Sure. And it really goes well with what Lindsay was saying that families, we don't wish these things on families, but I do think we have to be a purveyor of beauty parts in the hard. And, you know, Lindsay is calling that silver linings. And because of the challenges and because of how much the families have to work together because of the hard that's present, I think that can be one of the beauty parts. And Lindsay has kind of expressed that, that she's so much closer with her son, Brady, because they've had to work so hard together. And I really do think that that can be one of the beauty parts if you allow yourself to have eyes to see some of those pieces. Yeah. Thank you for that. And thank you for everything you contributed as well, Angie. Brittany, what would your message be? Well, my message would be if a doctor tells you, if you have Lyme disease and you feel like something is wrong and a doctor tells you that it's psychological, always get another opinion. Throughout this whole process, I've learned so much about having to navigate the medical system, going through all this, having to navigate insurance, doctors. And thankfully now I was able to be a, a part of House Bill 447, which actually mandated insurance companies now in Maryland to cover the treatment of pans and pandas. So even though I was talking about how expensive my treatment was, things are changing a little bit. And I know that more doctors and more insurance companies are starting to cover these things. And when it comes to the testing as well, so I was part of passing a bill, Senate Bill 926, where now we mandate labs in Maryland and Virginia, wow. where if you get a negative Lyme disease test, that lab legally has to give you a letter stating that you can still potentially have Lyme disease. So make sure you're getting the right test. The only test that you should be getting, it's called a Western blot, and to get a picture of that test. Because a lot of times doctors will see, okay, there's just, you know, very, very faint bands here. 
But if you actually look at the actual test, you can see that there's more bands than what they're actually counting. So always make sure to get a picture of the test and really just advocate for yourself because doctors don't know everything. Doctors are great sometimes, but they don't always know everything. And we typically know ourselves better than what doctors know about us. So, yeah, that's amazing. That's inspiring. And thank you for sharing that and and being a part of that. And hopefully we'll see some other areas, whether it's states here or provinces and different geographical areas across the globe here, being able to follow up in that. And Diana. I just want to give people the good news again. Kids, if they get treatment, grow up just fine, go to college and get married and have babies and everything's fine. Thanks, guys. Yeah, Thank you, Diana, so much. Thanks. I could go on and on so much. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it, you guys. You guys are all just, I'm so happy to know you. This has been so cool to see and hear everything everyone says. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of it, Nicole. Absolutely. And, you know, we'll do a number two. Yeah, I'll get some of those people from Europe over here. Let's make it happen, ladies. I like that. Right. See ya. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that. All right, fam. I mean, was that amazing or was that amazing? Right. I know I probably sound a little bit like a broken record at this point because I say this like almost every week. But seriously, I I feel so privileged to meet with you each week, fam. And then to have these amazing guests, Diana and Lindsay, both mamas to multiple kiddos affected by pandas and their advocacy is paving a way forward. They created purpose out of their pain that didn't just extend beyond their precious babes, but has literally sparked international conversation, learning, advocacy, research, and a network of hope. Brittany, fam, I I have to say, I knew of Brittany before we connected here because she has been a wave maker in so many ways. She was an early disseminator of imprint-based CBT in our field and a trusted resource that I know so many of my colleagues appreciate. But wow, to unfold the history of pain, exhaustion, brick walls with no answers, the minimization that her pain was just her being a teenager, that it was all just in her head. I mean, I think a lot of the fam here can relate. Trying and desperately seeking answers, investing time and more money than we have to find another I don't know. Go see this person. Maybe you'll grow out a bit. That story, your story, Britt, I can only speak for myself, but I really felt the pain and the despair. And I'm sure that barely even skims the surface of what you've experienced. But then to not only hear and learn how getting the right test, the right doctors, the right reading of the test results. Hello, bands. We see you. And see how that irrevocably changed the trajectory of your life, of your future. And not only that, but you went to school and you became a therapist so that you could be a torchbearer for others, needing and desperately seeking some kind of light to be shed on what's happening for them, for their loved ones, for their children, for their daughters, for their mothers. Thank you. Thank you. Not only for not giving up, but for sharing your wisdom and your strength with the rest of us. We are indebted to you. And Angie. Yes, yes, her name is Angela, but I call her Angie. <laughs> because Angie and I, were Hoosier gals. So we, you know, we keep it, we keep it on a fresh level here. And we first met when we were 
both being trained through the International OCD Foundation's Behavioral Therapy Training Institute, courtesy of OCD Midwest, because, eh, cornfield problems, remember? <laughs> we just don't have a lot of practitioners here in Indiana. So we go back a few years now, but Angie, she is such a treasured warmth and light in our field. She radiates hope more than she could ever know. And I know so many of our friends and colleagues agree. I mean, she has the magic of taking Armageddon, y'all. You were here. We all heard it. Armageddon. And helping to remind us that these kids, our fam, they aren't bad. Adult suffers. The parents, the spouses, they're just hurting. And this is a painful moment in the journey. Angie, you're a beautiful soul. And your ability to hold space for people whether they are drowning in the crisis of it all or in the backstroke of the monster they know. It's a profound and sacred gift. And it's a reminder we really are better together. So for today's intrusive thought segment, which is the application segment of my show for any new fam joining us, I want to take a page from Lindsay's book. Sometimes we're going through tough things. Sometimes our loved ones and neighbors are going through tough things. And we often don't have the full picture, the full story, even sometimes when it's our own story. But we can find some silver linings. And we can remember that most of us are just trying to do our best. Even when our best might just look like surviving, might look like anger, might look like frustration. So giving ourselves grace in the throes of struggles or giving someone else grace, even if they were a flat-out grouch to us, it really does go a long way. Because if we could strip back and understand the stories behind the pain, I think more often than not, we would learn that we're all just hurting, all just trying, and trying to stay afloat. And we all have things in life. For you or someone you love, it may be pants or pandas. For others, it might be Lyme disease. For a lot of the fam here, it may be OCD or another OCRD. For some, it may be something else completely. But if and when we can give out grace, and I'm fully acknowledging, fam, that sometimes the hardest person to give grace to is ourselves. It may not change the reality of our struggles in that moment, but it can change the tone of it. And that can bring hope. And hope can change lives. So this week, find someone, be it your brother, or a child, a spouse, or a parent, or maybe even just that reflection you see when you take a look in the mirror and extend some grace. That might look like saying, you're working so hard. I'm proud of you. That might be, I'm sorry, this is so painful. I love you. That might just be a whispered reminder that we're better together. Because you know what, fam? We are. And that includes you and me, all of us. So thank you again to my guests today, Diana, Lindsay, Brittany, Angela, and thank you, Brady, Brittany, and all our other lived experience warriors that have created awareness for pans, pandas, Lyme, through your strength and your courage. We honor you. And today, hope in this family shines a bit brighter because of you. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. 
The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like hearing about pants and spreading all the hope we can. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.